there's a balance to be struck between showing people enough of what they already know to make it feel familiar, but then showing them enough of different things to make it seem new at the same time. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Paris is one of the most written about, most photographed cities in the world. In a typical year, 30 million tourists visit the City of Lights. Given the global familiarity with an iconic place, can an author introduce readers to Paris in a fresh way? And what about including Marcel Proust, one of the most influential 20th century writers, in a storyline? Author Alex George has done this in his new novel, The Paris Hours, a story that follows four ordinary Parisians by looking at the lingering effects of war and human connection. The novel takes place in one day in 1927. Alex discovered a historical footnote involving Marcel Proust's notebooks and built a story around it. The Paris Hours kicks off the Real Fiction Summer Series. I've chosen some novels to transport us to faraway places as travel is restricted this year. I'll be back in a minute with Alex. My guest today is Alex George, a writer, bookseller, founding director, the Unbound Book Literary Festival, and a lawyer. He was born in England, but now lives in Columbia, Missouri. His latest novel, The Paris Hours, was just released by Flatiron Books, a division of Macmillan. This extraordinary story takes place on a single day in 1927 Paris, recounting the lives of four ordinary citizens and the glamorous singers and writers in their orbit. And in a triple COVID-19 whammy, uh, Alex George had to cancel his book tour, the popular literary festival, and temporarily close Skylark Bookshop to the public. So here to talk about all of this is Alex George. Alex, welcome to the program. Hi, Laurie. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. The Paris Hours is your latest novel. But before we get into that story, can you tell our listeners a bit about how a London lawyer landed in Columbia, Missouri? Ah, yes. Yes, well, perhaps predictably, I am here. I followed somebody here. I met um, uh, a girl. Uh, This was back in the mid-90s. We met in Paris, got married in New York, and then went to go and live in London. So after Paris, New York, and London, the next obvious step was (laughs) (laughs) mid-Missouri. Uh, And so we came back here in 2003 to be near her family. And in Columbia, Missouri, you now own and run Skylark Bookshop, which I mentioned, and you are the founder of Unbound Book Festival. So everything 
was canceled. It's amazing that this the the book festival and your book launch kind of coincided in the same month, mm. and then everything had to pivot in a hurry. So can you tell us a little bit about how the last past few weeks have been for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's been a crazy time. It's a uh, somebody on, on on Twitter said I'd sort of scored the trifecta of doom, <laughs> which I appreciated kind of, but then not really. Uh, uh, I mean it's been a, it's been a difficult time and a challenging time. Um, obviously, the the book festival has been you know we we cancelled that some time ago, and we managed to take uh, three so far three of the events and put them online and they've been very well received and we're hoping to do more of that. You know, everybody right now is in the market for silver linings. And one of the things that we've discovered, of course, is that when you put things online, you no longer need to be in the room to enjoy them. And so we've actually got a much wider geographic audience. So we're happy about that, even if it's not quite the same as getting everybody together. I mean, one of the joys of the festival is bringing 65 authors and poets and putting them in a room together and just watching them right. uh, enjoy each other. So we, we miss that, and we're very much already looking forward to next year. As far as the bookshop goes, it has been an extraordinary time. I mean, we we have changed our business model 100%. We are now effectively a mail-order business. We've been closed for seven weeks now. Uh, we've still been very busy um, because we have been mailing books all across the country. Uh, we also have been doing home delivery as well. But one of the things that has been so wonderful about it is the incredible uh, outpouring of support that we have received, not just from our community here in mid-Missouri, but from across the country. I mean, people, we have been shipping books everywhere. And people have just written and they've said, we really want to support you. And in the midst of all of this, you have one of the most anticipated novel releases of 2020. It's The Paris Hours, and now it's out in the world. It was just released on May 5th. This novel is an immersive read. It's something that readers will love right now because it's something that they can escape uh, escape into, and everybody wants to go to Paris for a day, right? <laughs> so we're in 1927 Paris in this series of interlinked stories. And I have to ask you about the structure of this novel, because what we get to do as a reader is not only indulge in the lives of some of the famous Americans living in Paris after World War One, like Ernest Hemingway, Josephine Baker, Gertrude Stein, we get to see it also through the eyes of four ordinary citizens living in Paris. And you've kind of pulled everything together. How how did you envision the structure of this book? Well, I, I don't know why um, or when I settled on the idea of telling the story over the course of a single day. But it was very, very early on. And it, it posed an enormous number of sort of technical problems, uh, which were fun, if <laughs> somewhat challenging at times, to finesse and to solve. But it was um, the stories are by their very nature um, sort of small stories. They're intimate, and um, because of that, keeping the timeline compressed in that way felt like a, it was a useful way of, of ensuring that that they, they stayed that way. And so, yes, it's immersive, but you know, it's a, it's a deep dive. 
Um, but it, it's not an expansive uh, story in that way. It was a challenge because the story, there, there, there are these four stories that are told, and they're told in very strict rotational order. You have one chapter after another in these groups of four. Um, but in addition to that, you also have the chronology of the day that is followed very strictly as well. And so that was a real challenge to um, do that because I wasn't allowed to, or I didn't allow myself to ever sort of jump backwards in time. So, so it did mean that there was a lot of sort of uh, metaphorical banging of my head against the table from time to time when I realized that you know, I, I had some real knotty problems that I had to, had to sort of untangle in terms of telling the story and having the story flow in the way that it should have, but then also managing these four separate narratives. You've obviously spent a lot of time in Paris, and we've all read a lot about Paris. If people like historical fiction, they've come across the city before, but you've managed to breathe new life into this city by offering such an intimate portrait through these characters. How did you map out the city? How did you decide which streets you wanted to walk down? How did you decide which neighborhoods to feature? And, you know, another question is, did you really feel drawn to a neighborhood? Do you have a particular neighborhood in Paris that you love? I do. I mean, I've lived in Paris uh, on a number of different occasions. And but when I think of it, I think of uh, a place where I stayed when I was working there as a lawyer. This would have been in ooh, 1995, I guess. And so I was 25 years old. Uh, and it was just, it was a wonderful sort of studio apartment overlooking the Place de l'Odéon uh, in the 6th arrondissement, uh, just off the, um, the Boulevard Saint-Germain. And I, so when I think of Paris, I, I sort of think of, of that particular area. And that's why it, it appears uh, in the book um, that the Luxembourg Gardens is just down the road and there are various other things that happen. But, but one of the challenges that one has when you write about Paris is to, there's a balance to be struck between showing people enough of what they already know to make it feel familiar, but then showing them enough of different things to make it seem new at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the thing about Paris is that it's very easy to descend into cliche because you know, everybody has an idea of what Paris is like, whether they've been or not. And um, so it's, it was that, that, that was an interesting challenge for me. And I wrote about particular places that, that I either knew well or was interested in. Um, and I, I tried to steer away from the obvious things like the Arc de Triomphe or the Eiffel Tower uh, and to take people perhaps more into the back streets uh, where real people live. I've been thinking about the sense of loss and time mm -hmm. in this novel, which is very Marcel Proustian, which uh, I'll ask you about in a minute. Um, Marcel Proust is a famous French writer who features prominently in your novel. And, but I want to ask you first about the character Surin, who is a, an Armenian puppeteer. He's a refugee. And you just mentioned, um, Alex, that you wanted to get into some of the back streets and the lives that perhaps we haven't considered in Paris before. Were there a quite a number of Armenian refugees settled in Paris after the genocide? I'm really curious as to why you chose a character from that, that background. So the reason why I told that story and why Soren appears as he does is um, due to uh, a friend of mine uh, who lives in London and who is an attorney. I actually, he, he was my trainee uh, a long time ago. 
And uh, we both suffer from an affliction. Uh, it's a, a particular passion for Arsenal Football Club. Uh, and we used to go, we used to go and watch um, soccer games together every other Saturday. And before the game, we would meet, meet up in the pub and have a pint of beer uh, and talk. And uh, he was telling me about the atrocities that were committed at that time, and particularly about the uh, campaign that is ongoing to have the terrible things that happened recognized as the genocide that it undoubtedly is. And it's one of those things, you know, when you're a novelist, I always say that we're a little bit like magpies. We're always looking around for shiny objects um, that catch our eye. And, uh, you know, we squirrel them away. You know, you're never quite sure when, when you're going to use them. Um, but I always thought that, the, you know, the Armenian genocide was, I mean, it was this terrible, terrible episode of history that is not well known or not well enough known. And one of the privileges of being able to tell stories um, and to be able to share those stories with, with a, a wider public is the ability to every so often shine a light on a thing or a moment of history or a person that perhaps deserves to be more widely known. From us to your question, Laurie, about the number of Armenians in Paris at that time, um, I confess I don't know. Uh, I mean, they they fled everywhere um, across Europe and beyond. So um, I'm sure that there were uh, there were Armenians there. If perhaps they didn't quite get to France in the slightly unorthodox way that that Soren did. It makes sense that uh, he landed in Paris because the way that you present Paris is in a way sort of a sanctuary. What I really loved was um, observing Soren and his puppeteering craft and um, kind of healing through his connection with audience in the same way that the very famous character Josephine Baker found a path toward healing from how she was treated in the United States. Mm -hmm. Paris was just a very welcoming place, perhaps for refugees and and celebrities. So those two characters together uh, in the way you present them is quite marvelous. And so back to my, my, the first part of my early question is Marcel Proust, features prominently in this book. And I really wondered about the character Celeste, which is another main character in the story, and her connection to this writer. Um, they both shared secrets, and they they look out for each other in, in your novel. What informed your research about Proust's private life and these notebooks, which kind of feed the plot line? So... I, I, the, the idea for really a lot of the book came from this particular story. Um, and Celeste Albaret was the name of uh, Proust's real life maid. Uh, in, I've changed her name in the book. Uh, it's now Camille um, because enough things changed that I sort of felt the need to change the name. But, but Celeste wrote um, a memoir. Um, towards the end of her life when she she told about her relationship and her friendship with Proust. And during that memoir, there is this this scene that she recounts where Proust asked her to burn these 32 notebooks that contain the bones of all seven volumes of In Search of Lost Time. And um, I was just, um, I mean, the, the idea about burning all of those notebooks gave me some minor palpitations. Uh, and again, it was like that magpie thing. I couldn't get it out of my head. 
and and so I sort of thought you know, because I, I spent a lot of time thinking, well, goodness, what treasures went up in smoke in Proust's kitchen <laughs> when she burned them in the in the grate, um, and. That was the most difficult scene to read in many ways because you just can't imagine how this was. So this is a true story. Yes, it is a true story. Well, the burning of the notebooks is a true story. What what is not true and what is the product of my imagination is because, you know, writers spend a lot of time going, well, what if, what if? And so I I read this story about, about, um, the maid burning the notebooks. And of course, my immediate reaction, I think partly born from my own, sort of, I was so appalled at the idea that I was sort of trying to rewrite history <laughs> in a fictional way. And so I said, well, what if she kept one for herself? What if she saved one from the fire? Um, so that is not true. That is something that I, um, I made up and that was where my imagination got to work. So when we're reading this story and I'm in that scene where the notebooks are burning and everything felt kind of, you know, dreamlike. And I knew I wanted to ask you about the mood and the style of your writing, because even some of the most painful memories are kind of laid out in a very kind of, I don't know, there's, there's a soft drum beat that just kind of allows you to sink into the into the scene oh what a great question i love i love the idea of the soft drum beat thank you that's um that's that's really wonderful um i mean i don't really know laurie other than i just keep going until it feels right um i don't begin with a sense of of where quite where the tone needs to be because I don't know that you can do that at the beginning. You sort of need to have something that you can then sculpt into what you want. Um, certainly, I mean, I, everybody writes differently, but that's certainly been my experience. I mean, there is a slight, because I'm sort of, uh, obviously the book is in English, but the, and the characters speak in English, although they're actually speaking in French. And so I did try and develop a, a degree of sort of detachment um, I guess, uh, which is maybe where that dreamlike quality comes from. But I mean, I am a, a, a terrible, uh, well, perhaps terrible isn't quite the right word, but I, I'm a, an avid editor and rewriter of, of every every sentence that I write. Uh, and, and every book I write goes through multiple, multiple, multiple drafts. Um, and I think that's partly a function of the fact that I don't quite know when I begin where I want that tone to fall, how I want that voice to sound. Um, and it's one of those things that I sort of, I know it when I see it. Um, and then at that point, I can sort of fall upon that and then go, okay, well, that's that's where we are. And then sort of reverse engineer the rest of it. Um, but, you know, voices is critical and... Um, you know, I don't. I don't feel as a, as a writer that I have a voice. There are some some authors you just you can tell within, you know, two phrases that it's a particular person. Um, that's not me. <laughs> so 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 for every book, I'm trying to find find that pitch and and and, and to to sort of use it as best I can. So it's it's a it's a long and painful process. Uh, and that's why there's so long between books. I loved that you have a character in the Paris hours um, through Jean Paul who's really has this vision for what will America be like. He has this kind of idea of New York City. And when you were living in 
London and Paris and writing, did you have a kind of vision of America before you landed here? Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, I used to joke, I remember the very first time I went to New York City, which is to go to a, a friend's wedding. And this is a friend, actually, who I who I met in, in Paris. Uh, and I flew into JFK, this would have been in 1996, I guess, and uh, took the took the bus in from the airport. And I remember that moment of turning across over a particular hill and seeing the Twin Towers in the distance and uh, and then landing at Grand Central or wherever I got off the bus and seeing the steam coming through the the, the things in the road. And um, and for me, it was like that. that's every Englishman's sort of cliche of, of New York. But, you know, we, we all, you know, come to these things with certain preconceptions and and those were mine when it came to new york and um you know and and people have the same as i was saying before the same sort of similar things with paris and no doubt with london too and so but but that longing i think is something that we all have to a greater or lesser extent you mentioned that you like to spend a few years working on the books there's there's a break between each novel do you know what you're working on next? I am. I, I'm on the, in the saddle um, writing another story. I have not written much. I've written one chapter. It's, it's quite a long chapter, but it is just one chapter. I, I actually began, I have begun and then abandoned two other books. Um, I was actually talking to um, Christina Baker Klein yesterday, and we were talking about uh, novelists having this, <laughs> what she called spidey sense, which was a perfect way of putting it. It's just a when you when you really get that it's just instinctual or in your gut when you really know that a story has got legs um, because it, and it needs that it needs to sort of ignite something within you because certainly the rate I I write which just to say incredibly slowly you know it is a it is a multi year endeavor and you need to know that the story that you're telling is one that is going to engage you and you're going to be passionate about all the way through the process. Um, and I, as I said, I began two other books and I wrote 15,000 words of one and about 3,000 words of another one. And I just, and I realized that it just was that, that spidey sense, as Christina put it, it just, it wasn't there. And so I put them to one side um, because it's, you know, the worst thing in the world would be to get a couple of years in and suddenly realize that, oh, well, actually, you didn't really care that much about this after all. Yeah. Alex, how do you write? You, you own... A bookshop. You still do some legal work, and mm-hmm. um, you do a lot of book promotion. How how do you schedule a day, and do you map out several hours in a day to write? Yeah, I mean, I have always been a morning person, and I get up at five o'clock every day to write, and I write from five to seven every morning, and that I do. I mean, I say, I say, I mean, right now, not so much, but when I am in that, in that mode, um, and I do that seven days a week. Uh, and the thing about five o'clock in the morning is that you can be pretty much guaranteed that you are not going to get a phone call from a client or an email or anything else. So I have two hours and I actually turn my internet off, um, because I have the attention span of a goldfish and otherwise would be distracted by everything. So I, I, I turn it off and I work for two hours. I drink an awful lot of coffee. And then when that is over, I sort of switch off, uh, go and wake up my children and take them to school. Uh, and then I get on with my other jobs. So it's very, it's very, it's really quite sort of 
paradoxically rigid, um, but I need that sort of rigidity and that actually allows me the freedom because I don't have to worry about fighting for time because it's just, it's sort of built into my day. And I'll remind listeners that in addition to your 5 a.m. wake up calls, you then you then at some point go to Skylark Bookshop, which is an amazing independent bookstore in downtown Columbia. Independent bookstores have been thriving and then COVID came along. It's obviously been difficult. You've talked about the changes that you have made. Do you have any thoughts about the future of independent bookstores in light of what we're experiencing now? Do you are you hopeful? Are you fearful? I'm both. I mean, in the short term, as I said before, it has been a really quite inspiring uh, time. You know, it's been very challenging and we've had to innovate a lot, but, you know, we've had incredible support. Um, And so that gives me enormous hope. And, you know, and booksellers is a very collegiate industry and we all share uh, ideas and and then we get together on a regular basis and and exchange ideas. Um, We know that we have the best product, uh, you know, uh, everybody needs books and that's all great. But so I'm hopeful from that point of view. What worries me is actually not the short-term effects of COVID, but it's the long-term economic effects, um, you know, and that we will not really be able to understand for months or years to come. I mean, I keep reading about, well, if you thought, that 2008 was bad, or if you thought the 1930s depression was bad, this is going to be worse than both of those. And that's what worries me because, um, you know, books, of course, are essential, but if people literally don't have the money to buy them, then that's going to be a concern. Um, but, you know, what I do know is that the booksellers and uh, of this country and, and writers and publishers are very smart people, and they will continue to find a way of getting these stories into people's hands. My guest today is Alex George. He's the author of The Paris Hours. Alex, thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you, Laurie. This is so much fun. I appreciate it. been listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and available on your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.